the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 48. The Omega Factor. Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And today we're going to be looking at the series from 1979, The Omega Factor, with James Hazeldean and Louise Jameson. Now, this is, we're going to be covering the entire 10 episode series and probably touching on the audio series as well. But before we do that, I'm going to launch straight into the tonic screwdriver this week because I'm ready for a drink. What have we got for tonight? Tonight we have Linden Lime Gin, again, courtesy of the Little Gin Box. And the Little Gin Box have been an absolute godsend during the, the lockdown because they send each of us a couple of little taster gins every month. And we've been able to, uh, each of us have a little taster of whichever gin we're reviewing and we can do it remotely because obviously with with the covid lockdown we're not able to face to face record i'm sitting in my room in sunny hull and ken is at a podcasting house so the lind and lime gin it's 44 percent gin so it's got a decent kick to it I have the info bollocks in front of me, and it says Linden Lime is produced with a carefully balanced recipe of seven botanicals, including lime and pink peppercorn, to create a delicate and complex spirit. On the nose, the ripe aroma of fresh lime still beautifully mingled with juniper. On the palate, the crisp, bright citrus makes it remarkable. It says remarkable refreshing, but I think they probably mean remarkably refreshing. Mm. Uh, you need to get your grammar right, little gin box. You're a bigger grammar Nazi than I am. I am, yes. Oh, only just, to be fair. To read that again <laughs> the way it should be read. Um, on the palate, the crisp, bright citrus makes it remarkable. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, this is even worse. <laughs> it's getting worse. The crisp, this crisp, bright citrus make it remarkable refreshing. No, no, no. This is not good enough. Um, so on the palate, the crisp, bright citrus makes it remarkably refreshing with the peppercorns gently enhancing the mouthfeel and lingering on a zesty finish. Well, they've kind of been a bit flowery and ungrammatical on the info bollocks, so one out of ten for the <laughs> box for their grammar. But let's see how many burners we want to give the gin itself. I've got to say, it's not one for me. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not to my taste. Um, I'm not mad keen on gins with peppercorns in. Yeah, I'm not wild keen on an overly peppery gin. And in terms of peppery gins, that's actually quite nice. I would probably make a, a decent martini, but it's, it overpowers the tonic. It's, yeah, it, I'll force it down, but that's about it. Mm. Um, well, no, actually, that, that's a little bit unfair. It, for what it is, it's good. It's just not for me with tonic. Um, I still think it's a good enough gin for me to give it a three. I'll give it a three too. I do think that there, there is a definitely a lingering zesty finish. I will give it that much. And it's not unpleasant. Some of them can be a bit tart and dry and suck all the moisture out of your mouth. This one doesn't. It just leaves a, it's like a, a little washcloth after a, an yeah. Indian meal. It's a nicely done gin. It's just not the kind of gin that I like. No, um, me neither. But I, I'll, I'll, I'll force it down. So nothing wrong with it, just nothing to overly recommend it. If I got that in a pub, I would enjoy it and I would order something else for a second round. Well, grab your glasses. We shall virtually descend into the Black Archive. 
I'm going to let you go first. What have you got for tonight? Is that because you haven't looked anything up yet? No, it is. I've got something. Well done, you. Um, for once. What I'm going to go with, and I've, I've been my to do the Opening Factor for ages, and when we first started podcasting, I know you were very keen to have us have a bank of stuff, because we only get together every so often to have things that you can edit away at so we don't end up with a, with a dry spell. Well, you, we've got about 60 episodes waiting to be delivered, so we can afford to spend the time to watch a 10-episode series and watch all the episodes of it and talk about the, the entire series. The Omic Factor is one of my absolute favourite series. It, it, it has been since I first discovered Telefantasy way back in the 80s. Um, I got hold of a copy of this after the, uh, the Brighton World Science Fiction Convention. I have watched this, I have no idea how many times, probably more times than I've watched most Doctor Who stories. I've always said that there are a handful of TV shows that I prefer to Doctor Who, and this is one of them. And my pick for the Black Archive is another one of the, my absolute all-time favourite series. Again, BBC Science Fiction from the 1970s, Doom Watch. Both shows have a Doctor Who connection with Doom Watch. It was the fact that it was Kip Hedler and Jerry Davis who, having done sterling work in the 60s with uh, creating the Cybermen, went on and created their own TV series with Doom Watch. And it was a modern day, modern setting in London, um, tales of scientific caution, uh, research going wrong, inappropriate interference from politics. Actually, stuff that was absolutely going on not to the the same sort of calamitous extent that you'd you'd want for a tv series but there was there was still a lot of top level interference with research when i was doing research and i have no reason to suspect that in the intervening 15 years it's changed at all for a program of its time it actually has quite a good survivability half the first series exists um, all of the second series exists a handful of episodes from the third and more disappointing series exist. In the midst of time, I do seem to remember it came out on VHS around the time when Doctor Who was in its prime and two releases a month. Four episodes came out on VHS, so they did The Plastic Eaters, which was the, the first episode. They did Tomorrow the Rat, which is actually a very clever episode, but is let down by some appalling special effects. They did The Red Sky. Oh, and I can't remember the fourth episode that they did. But subsequent to that, there's been a DVD release of all of the episodes. It's not been done with the restoration team level of care. It's actually very difficult to work out which disc you need to put in to watch a particular episode because none of them are labelled particularly well. Um, it's not been cleaned up at all for a series that is that seminal and that big a deal at the time and with such a big connection to Doctor Who I think it, des it deserves a better clean up and hopefully it is on somebody's list for remastered Blu-ray oh what a pity so anyway I yab it away like mad because these are two TV series I'm wildly enthusiastic about what would you like to bring out of the Black Archive well mine is actually thanks to you because on our first Halloween special we looked at a series called Dead of night and having oh, done oh yes we looked at we looked at the yeah it's quite miserable isn't it that one it, it's the one with the Christmas dinner where they're in a house and the house basically has a history and by a bizarre series of events they all die of starvation in front of a plate full of food it's an odd but compelling piece of television with one of the best monologues I've ever seen anywhere but having done a bit of digging there's not a lot of it left 
now three episodes in total which have had a dvd release we can at some point look at the other two episodes to my mind they're not as good as the one that we did they're still good pieces of television it's just the one that we looked at is a particularly good piece of television and it's a lot of that is down to that one performance and actually that one monologue but yes it would be lovely to see the rest of the rest of that and again tying in with the, the 1970s theme So, having rescued two bits of television from the archives, let's launch straight into episode one of The Omega Factor. Okay, well, we have watched the entire series. We were just going to do the first five. Which is why we've left it this late in our recording, because we're now at the point where we can do full series. Mm. And there are certain things that deserve looking at every single episode. Um, And it means that we can do some fantastic serials looking at the entire serial rather than just trying to make sense of episode the first episode and the final episode so i'm, I'm thinking of things like century falls and carrie's war uh, escape into night things like that that will take us a while to to look through but we've got we've got redundancy to be able to to do that god i sound like a policy project manager at the time of recording i am just cutting episode 47 we have easily got enough in the can now well into the 90s so taking the time over these things it's certainly more enjoyable as a viewer and it gives us a better overview of series as a whole. This is something I've never seen before. I was vaguely aware that it existed. The name was familiar, but I didn't know anything about it. Most Doctor Who fans will know this as the thing that Louise Jameson went on to after she left Doctor Who, and then after this, she went on to Tenko. And this kind of gets forgotten in the middle because obviously Doctor Who was a huge thing for her. Tenko was a it was a massive TV series. TV series. I have to say, not really my sort of thing, but I'm not I'm not really one for the majority of Second World World War series. This one kind of gets forgotten in the middle. Um, and part of that is because it was a BBC Scotland, so consequently it got kind of hidden in that in, in terms of publicity because we don't advertise things from north of the border. Not from the regions. It's a whole country, not just a region. <laughs> Scotland's one of the colonies, like Wales. That was the BBC attitude at the time, not mine. You're the one that bangs on about dissolution of unions, then you shouldn't be surprised that there is another union on the brink of dissolution. Save that for Brexit 3. Back to the Omega Factor. Mm -hmm. This is... This is one that I am ashamed to say I have never seen and never had a whiff of in the past because I'm right from the off, it grips you. Yeah, I'm absolutely amazed that in the over 15 years that we've been doing the uh, these telefantasy evenings, 
I have never, I have no doubt I'll have brought the Omega Factor along at some point. Prior to the Exynos experiment, we used to have um, occasional weekends where we would just blast through a whole load of archive telly. And what generally happened was we got a little bit of archive telly and then we had an entire weekend of Doctor Who because we're both Doctor Who fans. Uh, and it's one of those things, once you crack the seal on the Doctor Who, then it's... Once we get to a certain stage of the night, the gin's been flowing. It, we tend to finish on a Doctor Who because by that point we're Pissed. wasted enough and it makes commentaries a lot more fun. Uh, but it does tend to start... Oh, especially a, if it's a terrible story. Oh, the, the terrible ones are the best. Do you want to give us a pricey of the series as a whole and then we'll sort of look at the individual episodes? Okay. Uh, it is a BBC Scotland production from 1979, 10 episodes in total, with plans for a second series that never happened. It's the story of a London-based journalist by the name of Tom Crane, who is writing a series of articles about the supernatural. And he decides to go and do some investigation in Edinburgh, because one of his contacts says that one of the the, the last big names in the occult spheres, a, a bloke by the name of Drexel, is now based in Edinburgh as a, as a bookseller. So Tom Crane takes himself up to Edinburgh, thinks that he sees his wife around town, but isn't really sure sort of uh, several hours before he's due to meet her train. Goes and sees this bookseller, Drexel, who has no compunction whatsoever about admitting that he's the the, the famous, and he, the character is obviously based on Alistair Crowley. They bill him as as the man that Crowley was too afraid to meet. Now, and, just uh, I'm just going to cut across you there. I know the name, but I don't know the, the man, Alistair Crowley. Oh, he was an um, English occultist from the, I think he was most famous in the to 30s and 40s, he had a, a whole load of impressionable young people that uh, worshipped every word that he said. Something happened. Somebody, uh, a, a young woman died at one of his ceremonies, I think, to raise the god Pan. But basically, he was he was a uh, a British occultist, not associated with um, sort of Gordon Price and um, Edgar Casey and. Um, people like that who are involved in the the more benevolent spiritualist movement. And the general feeling is that Crowley was using this as a, a way to cop off with young women. Right. Um, was it the Order of Thelema that he, he founded? And he might have disappeared off to set something up on a, on a Greek island, unless I'm getting mixed up with uh, some of the Michael J. Bird series, or which we must do at some point. Um, oh, <laughs> Come on, don't run off down a rabbit hole. Come on, drag it back, drag it back. <laughs> Well, I, I'm pretty sure Alistair Crowley was the one who was the driving force behind the Rider weight deck of the tarot cards. And right. what we tend to think of as the classic deck of the tarot cards. So the one that you see Solitaire using in Living whichever James Bond film. Yeah. yeah, okay. You're the Bond fan. Not that I dislike James Bond. It's just you're fairly obsessive about it. Um, I might like them on a quiet, yes. I prefer the books, to be honest. The, the books are Oh, the books dark. are much better. Yes, they are. Yeah. I'll agree with that. Um, but yeah, anyway. Though, so Drexel's based on him, we think. Uh, yeah, that's either a crash course in Alistair Crowley or a load of bollocks that I've just made up. <laughs> Let's go with the form. With boys and girls, Wikipedia will tell you the difference. <laughs> um, so Tom Crane goes up to uh, confront Drexel, who's all quite an old cowardish. <laughs> and said, I could prove things to you, but why should I? Uh, and 
do you want me to astonish you? And he's, he's all terribly a bit arsy, really, isn't he? <laughs> You see, I can't... The trouble is, he's played by Cyril Luckham, who I only know as the White Guardian. It's fairly difficult to turn that off. But he doesn't have the hat. The White Guardian has to have a hat. <laughs> he's not got a White bird. Guardian, <laughs> the White Guardian has to have a hat. The Black Guardian has to have a bird on his head. These are the rules. I don't make the rules. These are the rules. So therefore, without hat, he is not the White Guardian. So anyway... I don't Cyril Luckham channeling Alistair Crowley through Noel Coward. Let's picture that in a downstairs bookshop. With a with a fairly dopey girl in the background who doesn't really seem to do very much. Or say anything. She, she spends the entire series not saying anything. Mm. Um, I don't think she was actually an actress. <laughs> really? <laughs> yep. Her name is Natasha Gerson, and William Gerson is the bloke who wrote the entire series, and she's his daughter. Now, where have we heard this sort of scenario before? Casting back Paula? to 1955. Are we thinking Paula? We may, we, yes. She was also a. Because Paula accident. <laughs> oh, Christ. <laughs> Paula Quasimus. She is the benchmark of RP. Hello, Paula's Telephone Answering Service. Which of the important characters would you like to talk to? <laughs> Can I get you a cup of tea? That's what I'm good for, being such a girl. Anyway, dragging it back. Um, um, Tom Crane has made this contact too, uh, with Drexel. Um, he's also met up with a friend of his wife's uh, by the name of Anne Reynolds. And there, there has been a mysterious disappearance a few weeks previously of a, um, a middle-aged woman who just walked out of her house in the middle of cooking her dinner. And the thing that Tom Crane suggests to Drexel that he proves his powers with is finding this woman. And Drexel says, well, you don't need to do that. You're perfectly capable of doing doing it and just dismisses it all. But Drexel does agree to give him a, a little bit of a, de a demonstration. And later on, while he's walking through to Dark and Deck Edinburgh streets, he ends up absolutely terrified with lights going out around him. And it's a really, really effective scene mm. driven by almost no special effects. It's lights being turned off. But it is James Hazeldean just being absolutely top of his game. And one of the things that makes this such a good show is that you have two leads, Louise Jameson, James Hazeldean, who are absolutely phenomenal actors and just act themselves off the screen. Their performances are underplayed, calm. They're responsive to each other. It, it, they're, they're just a joy to watch. Well, I can't believe I haven't seen James Hazeldean in more things. I know that I never really watched it, but I know that he was in London's Burning for a good long while. But he's what you might term a, a classically handsome actor. I mean, he's he's a handsome man, or he was. And as I've later found out from Wikipedia, died quite young of something very uncommon. Oh, what was that? Is aorta separated? Let me dissection. Dissection, that's the word. And it said it, uh, you know, only one in 10,000 get it or something. But I don't remember seeing him in anything else, if I'm honest. And I'm surprised uh, by that. He's in The Last Train, uh, which we can do at some point. But as you've said, both him and Louise Jamieson are extremely good. The third regular played by Don Carlisle is Roy Martindale. I mean, he's good. He puts in a good, credible performance, but he's not as good as the other two. No. I don't think there's anything wrong with him. It's just... He's a perfectly competent jobbing actor who is up against two very good top-of-their-game actors. But he plays the head of the department that recruits James Hazeldean's character. Yeah, right. Okay, so... Um... The, the rest of the episode is about Tom and Anne 
So the, the, the two lead characters looking looking into the disappearance of the woman. Tom's wife comes up to to visit Edinburgh and ends up being killed in a car crash. When Tom is driving, he swerves his car to avoid the image of the girl that was seen in Drexel's bookshop. Tom and Anne find the body of the the woman who was missing and the clues that they follow to get to her body. He gets in a premonition. So by the end of the episode, Tom is sort of grudgingly accepting that he has some kind of psychic power and that um, he agrees to come and work for the department that Anne works for, which is a research department looking into psychic phenomena. Uh, and the reason he does that is to try and track down Drexel, whose, whose bookshop has been cleared out as revenge for his wife's death. Yes, and the next few episodes are spent with Tom flexing his psychic muscles, really, and finding out a bit more about himself as much as anything else. But they investigate a a series of psychic cases, and they're all loosely underpinned by this search for Drexel. Just taking it uh, before we, we leave the first episode, there are certain things that don't make an awful lot of sense. So... You never find out why this middle-aged woman walks away from her chip and walks to the middle of um, Edinburgh, locks herself in a um, disused building and slits her wrists. There was a tie-in novel at the time that this was released, which is a full novel-length story of the first episode. And it makes it very clear that it was Drexel who got her to do that uh, and what she'd done to get onto his radar. Questions like that that in the episode don't make a huge amount of sense are explained in the full novel-length description of, of the episode. It's a very, very good read, well worth reading. I must admit that I'd missed that. Uh, I think it's largely because the the episodes themselves, they are packed full of story. There's not an ounce of fat on them, really. And actually, the way that it's done, there's no obvious connection between Drexel and the woman. Uh, Tom Crane turns up and says, you could use this this story that's in the local papers. And Drexel says, you don't need need me to do that. There's there's no obvious connection to it. It's just fleshed out really well in Mm. um, in the book. And there's an audio version of the book, I believe, narrated by Louise Jameson from Big Finish. And I, I know you're a big fan of narrated audiobooks. I'm not. Bizarrely, although I produce them, I would far rather listen to an audio drama. Narrated audio books, I, I think they need a little bit more to them, which is why I prefer dramatised readings rather than simple, straight narrated audio books. I think it just draws you in a little bit more. Yeah, and the thing about audiobooks for me is that I don't hear my voice in my head as I'm as I'm reading a book. I tend to visualise things, but audiobooks tend to jar because if there was going to be a voice, it should be my voice, and it isn't. <laughs> That's reasonable. Everybody reads in their own voice. If I'm interested in a book, I will read a book. Now, adaptations, even fairly book-like adaptations, and I'm, um, with that, I'm thinking of the, or, or book-like plays. So with that, I'm thinking of things like the Companion Chronicles for mm. Big Finch, particularly the early Companion Chronicles, where you would have one character. But as, as a more as a, a dramatical performance in character rather than a straight narration, with a another character thrown in there periodically, music and effects. So you've got to dramatise reading effectively. You, you're effectively listening to a, a one-character play. 
that's the sort of audiobook I would rather listen to than just a straight narrated, no frills reading of a book. Yeah, and and when when they have a good plot, then the companion chronicles are wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, I fell in love with them with Frostfire and. The, the good ones I still have a, a happy relationship with. Because just segueing a little bit here, I've not heard any of them, but you have heard the Omega Factor audios with Louise Jamieson, haven't you? Oh, they are fantastic. Um, I mean, I've, I've said for ages that the hallmark of Big Finish quality, if you want to know whether a Big Finish thing is worth listening to, look and see if Louise Jameson is either in the cast or has written it, because almost nothing she do, she does with them is bad. There was one dreadful one about Budapest Castle. You've um, mentioned this before. It's a fourth Doctor one, isn't it? Yeah, and unusually for Big Finish, it's the audio stuff that's awful, because the all these Hungarian soldiers have London accents, and it's all about, and, and there's a vampire or something and he just has the most unbelievably awful accent it, it, he spends the entire place sounding as though he's being strangled it is incredibly distracting and dreadful and it really dist- detracts from what's actually a reasonably good plot but in general if louise jameson's in a big finish it is a good big finish so omega factor tomorrow people um her leela stories the consistent benchmark of quality in Big Finish. I would second that. And the Omega Factor is no exception. It is it is absolutely superb. And the the things that she's written, she's a superb actor, but she's also turning out to be a fantastic writer as well. We'll come back to this after we finish yeah. the series, because I want to, to touch on where the Omega Factor audios go. The series itself, the television series, over the next few episodes, it's underpinned by this search for Drexel in between Tom finding out more about himself, his own discovery of his own psychic powers, how far he is willing to get involved and condone the actions of the department, get involved, use his own skills, and also learning to trust his colleagues because there's um, a decent amount of um, scepticism and and mistrust underpinning the whole thing. Yes, and th- there are other things going on as well. So he discovers that his brother is involved with experiments that the the department has been doing. I think saying the the quest for Drexel underpins things is overstating it a little bit because Drexel actually only appears in two, two episodes and he dies in episode four. So although he is the motivation for Tom coming into Department Seven. He's swept under the counter fairly quickly, um, and actually more than Drexel, the the assistant that he had in the bookshop turns up in in more episodes. Yes, and but Drexel really is just a a means into searching for this shadowy organisation that Tom becomes convinced of through various fragments of evidence called Omega. And the the people who uh, are associated with Omega have this um, fairly tacky signet ring with a um, silver Omega symbol on a black background. And Drexel has this, and there are a couple of other people he comes across that that has this, and on the strength of this, and actually not an awful lot else, he becomes convinced of this organisation Omega doing stuff in the background. He also finds out that his wife, Julia, was a computer programmer who predominantly worked for Department 7. And as the series goes on, you realise that she had recognised that there was somebody who was providing all Department 7's computerised data to 
this Omega organization. And so she was more of a, a threat to the Omega organization than Tom Crane, who just wanted to expose Drexel because Drexel turned out to be fairly incidental anyway. Mm. As the, the series sort of, it doesn't falter as such, but it does become, it descends into almost Tom's paranoia or so it seems as you get sort of episode six, seven, eight. It's sort of Tom's mental state of being seems to be unravelling, and then all of a sudden... I mean, yes, I agree with that, although I, I would say that it's really only the last couple of episodes that that, that happens. I mean, there, Tom ends up in a, in a relationship with Anne, and that can be a bit spiky at times. But actually, new relationships can be, and new relationships where you're working together are very difficult to, uh, to manage at times. Yes, they are. Because everybody needs a bit of their their own space. And if you're working together and living together and still don't actually know each other all that well, then that can be not easy. Yeah, there's a, and, a grim inevitability that Tom and Anne, the two incredibly handsome leads, will eventually get together. And it's very understated when it does. It's just... It's alluded to that there might be some sort of romantic potential there, and then all of a sudden, it's displayed on screen. They kiss, and they're they're, they're sleeping in the same bed. So it, it's never really a a major thing. It's just sort of Mulder and Scully esque bubbling under. It's only really at the tail end it becomes a major plot point. Uh... Well, it's only really in episode nine when, which I personally thought was bloody brilliant, because Tom becomes convinced through a series of events that his wife might not actually be dead. And obviously this puts a strain on his relationship with Anne, who quite rightly questions, if Anne's still alive, where does that leave me and you? And when are you going to accept the fact that she's dead and we've been together six months now and you're still going on and on and on about your wife? And it turns out that it's all, spoiler coming up, a massive cover by the department and Omega to send Tom quite out of his mind. They've stolen Anne's clothes from the old flat. They've got somebody to dress up in a wig and run around various Julia. places. Uh, Julia, rather, and appear in various places in her clothes, trying to drive him quite out of his mind, con- convincing him that she's still alive. And it turns out to be a ruse. But that ninth episode where they do that, you just wonder what the hell's going on. And it's only at the end you realise he is not imagining this. It's really somebody dressed up as his dead wife, trying to unsettle him and, and just destabilise his entire life. That's when... I mean, that's a hell of a cliffhanger, that. Yeah. I, I have to say, I am actually really jealous of you at this point because I, I, I sometimes skip over the ninth episode because it's all about the mystery and what's going on and is he going mad is somebody manipulating him what's going on the, the dead wife i've seen it so many times i know exactly what the, what's going on um and i can see the ending coming and it's just a bit yeah okay we'll we'll get on to all the revelations in the in the 10th episode so i'm actually really jealous of anybody who hasn't seen this before because I know how huge a treat it is. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Mm, um, oh, very I'm, much. As I say, I have deliberately left this until a lot later in our run, so we were able to do all 10 episodes of it, because if we'd just done the first five, it would have been great, through to Powers of Darkness, um, and we'll we'll come back to talk about Powers of Darkness, but you would have missed the 
manipulating kids episode in child's play you would have missed the global pharmaceutical thing in st anthony's fire you would have missed all of the revelations that happen in the ninth and tenth episode and particularly the tenth episode where you realize who traitors at work are and the character of Scott Erskine, who is the, the boss of Department 7 and looks over the whole country's uh, all of the the different branches of, of Department 7, he becomes more of a major character. You'd have missed out on all of that good stuff. So, yeah, we needed to do all 10 episodes of this. In order to quantify this, we originally, because my time has not been... Uh, I've not had much free time recently. It was just a case of do the first four episodes. Oh, and you may as well do the fifth because that was one that sent Mary Whitehouse into a frenzy. Uh, and we'll podcast about that. Once we got into it, I just decided that I would make the time to watch the other half of the series. And I'm glad I did. It was well worth it. The 10th episode is one of those strange episodes where it sets up as many questions as it answers. It was clearly intended that this would go to a second series. And really, it's a shame that it didn't. Yeah, um, and it was the, the Mary Whitehouse complaints, and particularly complaints about the students playing with the Ouija board episode, and one of them becomes possessed or convinced that she's possessed by a 17th century, would it be, witch? I think, yes, it is, yeah. My history is fairly rubbish. They start playing about with Ouija boards, and there's a lot of talk about drug taking the uh, the girl's boyfriend had was in hospital because he had a bad reaction to Detura. So you assume that she's not drug naive, although that's never actually fully stated. No, you'd warn me about this, or you'd, you'd inform me that this was the episode that Mary Whitehouse took umbrage with. And I think it's listed some, because I've done some reading on Wikipedia and INDB and what have you. That episode five, Powers of Darkness, was the one that really stopped there being a second episode made. Looking at it even through, uh, trying to look at it through the 1980s prism rather than 2020 eyes, it's really not that bad. I was going to say, if you compare it to the following episode, which is Child's Play, that's about a, a child who is discovered to be a very powerful telekinetic and there are much, much more disturbing things in that because Powers of Darkness is all about adults doing dumb things themselves and rescued at the end. Child's Play is all about government manipulation of a young boy because he has a um, a talent that the country needs. I actually and found so the ending of that pretty disturbing. They basically, they find this young boy, work out, he's having problems at school, which purely by chance, Tom and Dan realise that he's actually latent psychic powers. He gets taken in by Department 7. Martindale experiments on him, much to the annoyance of Tom, and in the end, they progress him to such an extent that it brings it out to him. And this innocent little boy who doesn't know what's going on turns out that once he finds out what he's capable of, he runs somebody over with a car. And yeah, it, the episode it, ends. And th that that hit me far harder than any of the Ouija board nonsense. Yeah, Child's Play is a vastly more disturbing episode than Powers of Darkness. But I think somebody who's coming from a, a very stiff upper lip church background would regard the Ouija board possession, would regard that as worse than a bit of, a bit of child abuse, because well, actually 
that's what the church does anyway, isn't it? I couldn't possibly just, comment. Having yeah. been raised on this magical sky daddy doctrine, I'm afraid I have very, very little tolerance for any religion. It's just the one thing that I would get rid of. So but, there's nothing at all on the planet that you can not comment on. You can say that COVID is a government conspiracy to control the population and that there is no global pandemic. You can cast doubt on the spherical nature of Earth. You can say any number of things against any number of people. The one thing you cannot do is say that somebody's imaginary friend is a load of old horse shit. And it doesn't matter what denomination they are, that is just completely off limits. And that's the the powers of darkness thing, because that that was the one that uh, she had a real problem with, because I think a chunk of it is because the the final denouement where they they face down the the witch that this young student has believed that she's become. The final denouement is in a church. So it's bringing in the whole Christian ideology thing, whereas Child's Play, all of the action is either at this fairly idyllic um, farmhouse way out in the, the Scottish Highlands or in the, in the lab. And there, there's nothing unscientific about it at all. But it's just absolutely horrible what they do to, to this poor kid. And the only person who's actually really looking out for him is Tom. Bizarrely, if this was made today, those two episodes would be switched around in terms of what is acceptable to be shown. Tom and Martindale both go into the little boy's bedroom alone at night just to check in. There's nothing untoward, but just to check in. But the whole manipulation of a child, the whole adults being alone in a child's bedroom, I think if that was put on today, there'd be far more of an outcry about that than there would about Ouija boards and churches. I think there'd be an outcry about both, but I think there'd be an outcry about both from different people. And actually, in terms of child's play... Rightly so. It was a different time. It would have been seen as entirely appropriate. But you, you shouldn't show grown men who aren't related to the the kid and have only known him for a few days going into his bedroom at whatever time in time of night. Now that's just not appropriate. Well, you say that, but the thing is. The whole crux of the episode is that what they're doing to this kid, Tom inherently disagrees with. It is not painted in any sort of good light that governmental scientific experimentation on a kid, however much they're trying to look after him and make sure he's got a nice comfortable bedroom and whatever he wants, toys and games-wise, and everything to make him comfortable, but it's not portrayed in a good light. Now, to say that you shouldn't show that, I just think if it was shown in any sort of a positive light, then yeah, I, I might sort of cock a snook at that. But it's not painted in a good light. It is very, very demonstrably shot on screen as this is bloody uncomfortable, but what these government people are doing is uncomfortable. Now, whether or not you shouldn't show it just because it's uncomfortable, I don't know. I don't probably agree with that but in terms of a comfortable watch no it isn't i actually think that rather than episode six this would work an awful lot better as episode eight so you have mm. Anthony's fire you have the out, uh, out of body out of mind where the team are really gelling um okay they're, they're, they're tom has suspicion of martindale 
sort of burbling around in the background. But it's really child's play where he starts with the whole, the only thing that you're interested in is the science and you're prepared to drag a, a young child out of bed in the middle of the night purely to do your experiments. If that had been episode eight, so planting the seeds of of doubt about the whole Department 7 thing, and then you go on to Double Vision, episode nine, where there, there becomes real doubt about Tom's sanity. And then you go into episode 10, which is the big um, dramatic conclusion. I think that would work an awful lot better than sitting child's play at episode, episode six and then having a, a, a couple of, it's unfair to call them filler because they're both very good episodes but more standard episodes yeah, where you've yeah. got you've got you've got the team doing what the team does if you were to bring child's play to episode 8 then it would be cracks starting to appear in the the, the department 7 system things starting to fall apart i'd actually agree with that i'd not thought it but it's a very good point yeah because it does fall, the run does falter ever so slightly once you get to that sort of 6 7 8 period i won't say it loses its way but there's no they're just in there. They're not really part of an arc I, as such. It's only when you get to nine, ten that there's a definite sort of rounding off. This is building to something big. Whereas I think you've got a ramping up with episode six with child's play. Mm, yes. Um, and then with episodes seven and eight, it you're drops back, back down. to the actually powers of darkness. For all, it's the one that has the, um, the reputation of the drama. It's a perfectly run of the mill standard episode. Yes, it is. Um, and if you had Powers of Darkness and then Snappy's Fire and then Out of Body, Out of Mind, and you're kind of lulling people into the false sense of security that, oh, this is turning out to be a supernatural done on the week and it's very good and it's very act- well acted and it's very well done. And then suddenly you hit them with Child's Play and it's like, what the hell is this? Um, is Department 7 that, uh, as benevolent as we think it is? Is Martindale as protective as we think he is? Um, why is he doing all the, this stuff in the middle of the night? Why is he manipulating uh, this the, the situation? So it basically training the kid as a psychic super weapon. And then you go into the, the double vision. What's going on with Tom? Is that is all of this in his mind? Is he going off the deep end? And then you go into illusions where you where you actually get to see the Omega organization. And yes, it exists. And yes, it has been pulling all the, str- the strings in the background. And yes, they, they've been trying to get hold of Colin. They've been trying to weaponize this kid. And it's all terribly amoral. And there's a, a, a defecting scientist from um, Eastern Europe and they kill his ha- handler and they end up destroying his his brain because they're, they're trying to get cooperation out of him too quickly. And it's, it, it's all very amoral. And having those three episodes do suspicion and revelation on top of suspicion and revelation on top of suspicion and revelation after a few supernatural villain of the week, I think that would have worked really well. Whereas what you actually get is you have a bit of a plateau and then you have a bit of ramping up with child's play. And then you have another plateau for a couple of fairly good but standard episodes. And then you have a ramping up again. I think it would have worked better if you'd had all the Monster of the Week episodes in the middle. And then you'd had that three episode. This is actually a bit nasty. And this is a lot nastier. And oh, good grief, this is awful. I'm just a little bit too young to remember the full thrust of Mary Whitehouse at her peak. I do now recognise that Kenny Everett's Colonel Muriel Clean, the campaign for nice things on television, was 
a horrific piss take of Mary Whitehouse. But um, and, she must have, she was like Twitter distilled into one person. She must have yeah. just spent her entire life watching every program to complain. Yes. Oh, th- this sounds awful. I much I must watch it to to be the guardian for the children. It's like the the Mecca Streisand episode of South Park. Now. T- Barbara Streisand made a, a a big fuss about oh what if a child ha- happens to be watching so they, they did this enormous piss take episode where she died she turns into Godzilla called Mecha Streisand <laughs> um, it is absolutely hilarious in the way that only South Park can be hilarious um, and horrifically offensive in the way that only South Park can be horrific- horrifically offensive you see I think there is room for because I haven't seen South Park for twenty years but I think there is room for that corner of television to be outright offensively satirical just to show how ridiculous these people that get offended are so we've got to episode 10 we've had mary whitehouse we've got to episode 10 we've wrapped it all up martindale is revealed to be working for this omega society group and has realized that it's not what he believes in anymore they're they're just going down a tangent that he doesn't agree with so he confesses all unfortunately omega don't want to let him go because he's too valuable to them so they wipe out the new head of department seven who is in based in london and you're left with this massive open end where martindale tom and anne are all aware now that omega is this real thing and that's where it sort of leaves and tom is contacted by overall boss of Department 7, who would, was the one who was the boss of Scott Erskine. And yeah, it, it sets everything up for, absolutely beautifully for Series 2. There's a scene towards the end of Episode five, episode 10 where Martindale is sitting in his office and he's walked away from Omega and he's confessed everything. And the, the main woman that we've seen from Omega just walks into his office and said he didn't think it was going to be that easy to, to walk away. Mm. And then they cut away from the scene. And again, that's a really well played, it's a very short scene, but it's a really well played scene. Um, and a little bit disparaging about, um, Martindale's performance earlier. It's not that he gives at any point a bad performance. It's just he's massively outclassed by Louise Jameson, but pretty much any actor is. Mm. It would have been interesting. It would have been a completely different direction for series two because Department Seven is effectively shut down and Omega takes over. So I would, I would be interested to know what direction the, you've heard the Omega Factor audios, which I presume are, even though it's 20 or 30 odd years down the line, have continued the story with Louise Jameson's character. Where do they go with it? The Omega organization itself is less of a thing. Um, it's more the supernatural investigation. It's very, very good. Um, ne- next time I'm over, I will lend you the uh, the CDs because they're really well worth listening. Louise Jamison writes a few of them, and they're excellent. I don't want to say she's as good a writer as she is an actress. She's a very, very good writer. I mean, she's a phenomenal actress, so it, it's difficult to compare excellence to superlative. Yeah, it's just a pity that so many of the original cast are dead. I think there's only really Louise Jamison left. No, there's Natasha Gerson as well, and she reappears in it. Oh, right, right. So there is a, a, a bit of a connection. Yeah, but it reconvenes 2025 
30 whatever years later with Anne Reynolds running Department 7's Edinburgh office and Tom Crane's son turns up and they end up being the two main characters for the, the series. But it's worth a look or a listen. Oh, definitely. Like I said, I've, I've got all the CDs. I think it's fantastic. I will lend them to you next time I'm across at Podcasting House whenever that turns out to be. So to wrap up, Omega Factor is one of those things that can really, really be recommended. Now, I've come to a lot of these things cold because Simon's knowledge of archive television is far in excess of mine. I'm constantly beautifully surprised by what lands on the doormat. Omega Factor is one of those real gems that I can't quite believe has passed me by. But I don't ever remember seeing that repeated anywhere. It's not a UK gold thing or... No, it wasn't. I think because of all the the fuss that was made at the time and the the, the Mary Whitehouse um, complaints and and all of that. No, it, it, and it's an odd series length. Ten episodes doesn't really fit comfortably into schedules. What you want is 13 episodes to a full quarter of a year. Can you imagine any popular science fiction series only running for 10 episodes? On a scale of... uh, Undermind is 11, which is even weirder. Undermind is 11. This is the next one we're coming on to. Right. Yes, we we have a special guest reviewer for Undermind. Hello, Alex. You'll be welcome aboard. So on that note, boys and girls, I shall sign us off. Thank you very much for listening. Omega Factor, strongly recommended in all its forms. Book, CD and DVD. We shall be back next time with more archivey goodness. Until then, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye now. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rushton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.